Well, as we get started with the, the sermon this morning, can I ask you a very serious question? What is the f- worst flavor of ice cream you have ever tried? Uh, a, a few years back, we, we had a gift certificate for an ice cream place up in Walnut Creek, uh, Andrea and I, and I'm not quite sure I remember the name. Uh, it wasn't downtown. It was kind of in some strip mall tucked away somewhere. Not even sure why we had a gift card. And we thought, sure, let's spend $12 in gas to go save $10 in ice cream. Uh, so we went, and this place was incredibly popular, but I walked in, and uh, I looked for the stuff that I like, mint chocolate chip, cookie dough, uh, something with peanut butter, anything with peanut butter in, uh, in it, and I am in, and those were nowhere to be found. Uh, what I saw was a case full of ice cream ready to be scooped with flavors like avocado, rose petals, corn. Corn. Have you ever been to some of these places that have the kind of new, gourmet, trendy ice cream flavors, the weird flavors? Uh, I remember asking to taste corn, because how can you not taste corn when somebody's offered that to you in ice cream? And it was the worst mushed corn flavor that I had ever imagined it could be. It was like what I think I had as, as, as baby food at some point uh, with Gerber's corn baby food, except now it was frozen. Uh, although I will tell you, Gerber's doesn't even make a corn flavor anymore. Now they pair it with sweet potatoes and zucchini and pear. Well, I, I looked it up this week. There are internet threads dedicated to weird ice cream flavors all over uh, that are all over the nation in ice cream parlors, although there's a surprising amount here in the Bay Area. And uh, would you believe there's garlic ice cream? Somebody over here said garlic when I, when I first asked the weirdest one they'd tasted. Um, bone broth ice cream. Yeah, I love how they've thrown some sprinkles on it. If you put sprinkles on it, it makes you forget what you're tasting, I guess. Eggs and bacon ice cream which I thought that I would try bacon anything, but you put eggs in it and you'll lose me. I love eggs, but I just don't want scrambled eggs in my ice cream. Um, Here's one more. This is from a place in Maine, lobster ice cream. We can agree to disagree on lots of things around crosswinds, but seafood in your ice cream, that's just a no. Well, as much as we can have some fun looking at these, the point of flavors is that everybody likes... Oh, you hear me okay? Um, everybody likes something different. Everybody has their own tastes. And, and, and we think of flavoring typically as a good thing as we should. But actually, there's a little bit of a problem with this. And it comes to the last forgery that I want to talk about with you as we get ready to close out this series. It has to do with you and your flavor. Um, let me read you something that Jesus said right after so many of the things we've looked at so far this series. We've been looking at the blessed are the statements or, or what sometimes are called the Beatitudes. And they've included blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek and, and, and those who mourn and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Last week, we looked at blessed are the peacemakers and we saw that Jesus said, even if you are persecuted for making peace, It's worth it. Well, he ends the blessed are the statements by saying what I I want to look at with you today. This is how he wraps it all up. This goes with everything that we've talked about so far. Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus closes the blessed are these by telling his listeners, you are like salt. And for 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out what in the world he meant by that. 
Now, there are sermons that I've heard preached and commentaries I've read and journal articles and lots of different ideas about what aspects of salt Jesus was talking about. Salt is a preservative. Jesus was saying, you're here to preserve the world. Salt thaws, salt thaws frozen things. You're here to thaw a frozen world. Salt makes the world thirsty. You're here to make the world thirsty for Jesus. There are all sorts of ways the people have tried to understand what Jesus was getting at here. But the one thing that I have heard more than any other, the explanation that seems to have stuck the longest, flavor. Salt brings flavor. And you, follower of Jesus, your job is to go out into the world and sprinkle a little of yourself on everything you see and bring your flavor to a world that is bland and tasteless. So for many, many years... Jesus' followers have sought to do that, right? Sprinkle a little salt onto their place of work. And uh, uh, sprinkle a little salt at their school. And throw a little salt on their neighborhood. And dump a bunch of salt on their family. And all of that sounds good until you ask the next logical question. Well, what flavor is your salt? Earlier, you saw that video that Derek and our team shot in a spice store. And they, they looked at all these different kinds of salt. Did you know there were so many salts? And, and while salt is salt, they, they, they talked about how size and weight and texture can influence the flavor, and even more, how there are actual flavors of salt. There is truffle salt, jalapeno salt, espresso salt, smoked salt, so many different flavors. Um, you guys, one night for our anniversary a few years ago, Andrea and I went to the steakhouse in San Jose, and uh, we sat down, and as we're waiting for the server to come take our order, somebody brought us bread and butter, and they said, okay, now this butter you're about to have is not just normal butter. It has Hawaiian black lava salt in it. I could see the specks of black on the butter. It looked like somebody had sprinkled pepper on it. Uh, or worse, they had dropped it on the way to the table, put it back on the plate, and told us it was salt, right? Um, I had never seen black salt before. Himalayan pink salt, sure, that's everywhere. It's trendy. But black salt, is that even a thing? Yes, it is. And it was delicious. I don't even remember my steak that night. I just remember this butter that you could spread on your bread. And, and the lesson I learned is that salt comes in all sorts of colors and flavors. And so let me ask you what I think is a reasonable question. If Jesus, when he said, you are the salt of the earth, was talking about flavor, what flavor of salt did he mean? Kosher salt? Sea salt? Garlic salt? Black lava salt? Soft pretzel salt? The salt you can pour on your fries when you're at Red Robin? Which flavor of salt? Now, can I tell you how I think most Jesus followers have answered that question? Whatever flavor suits their tastes. So if you think the world needs a, a, a little bit more conservative value added in, well, just sprinkle the flavor of that salt. If you think the world needs to loosen up, stop telling everybody how to live. Okay, well, I'll just sprinkle some of that salt. If you think the world needs to know that they're living in sin, dump salt that way. If you think the world needs to be tolerant because Jesus accepted everybody, sprinkle that salt. Seems to me most people who take these words of Jesus seriously that we're to be the salt of the earth, they're happy to go add their salt. The problem is we each have our own understanding of what salt we're supposed to bring. Which is why I think maybe Jesus didn't mean flavor. And sometimes the flavors we come up with don't work so well together. We end up throwing salt at each other or, or pouring salt on our wounds. Can I tell you another problem? Maybe flavor isn't all it's cracked up to be. 
I was reading an article a few weeks ago by a woman who was uh, out to buy blueberry pomegranate juice at the supermarket, and uh, the front label said 100% blueberry pomegranate juice, all natural, pictures of blueberries and pomegranates on the front of the jug, and then she got it home, and she read the ingredients. And you know how they have to go in order from like what's the most common thing in there to the most least common thing? And it, it said uh, filtered water at the very top, pear juice concentrate, apple juice concentrate, grape juice concentrate. And she thought, where's the blueberry? Where's the pomegranate? Finally, she saw them fifth and seventh on a list of nine ingredients after mysteriously unspecified natural flavors. You've probably noticed this too, right? When you go to buy those things. It's a weird thing. It was called blueberry pomegranate juice, but it was just flavored to taste like blueberry and pomegranate. And, and I think the other challenge with thinking that Jesus meant flavor when he said, you are salt, well, maybe the flavor isn't what the world needs. Maybe our world doesn't need flavor, it needs the real thing. Maybe it doesn't need a Jesus flavor from you. Maybe it needs Jesus from you. And I would ask this question, are you bringing Jesus flavoring to the world or actual Jesus? If there was a list of ingredients on a label for you, would Jesus be the main ingredient on it or would he be somewhere after a bunch of other things? Let me make it more complicated. Would your packaging suggest that you are something that you're not? Would, would the, the people that you present yourself to every day think they were getting one thing and instead get another? I, I think this understanding of salt as flavor has actually turned into a forgery where everyone just brings their personal Jesus flavor to the world and calls it Jesus. Instead of bringing real Jesus to the world, we give it Jesus flavor. And I, I'm pretty sure that's not what he had in mind. And Jesus invites you to something so much more special and, and more organic than that. And so with the time that we have left, I want to show you what I think that Jesus had in mind when he said this. Now, the beauty is, Jesus doesn't just leave us with this one line about being salt of the earth and a caution, don't lose your saltiness. He keeps going after this. Actually, I think he defines what he means by salt by giving us another metaphor to work with, light. Take a look at the next verse. In Matthew 5, 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And then in 14, he continues... You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. All right, Jesus tries to help us understand the salt thing by giving us something equally confusing. You are light. Actually, actually, this one's a little bit easier to understand. Some of you may know Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He does it in the book of John. I'll show you right here. It's important to know because is it him or is it us? Well, we'll get this. At the time that Jesus said those two things, he was not the only one called the light of the world. In fact, there were certain rabbis who called themselves and their followers called them lights of the world. Rabbi was kind of an esteemed position. You were illuminating truth to people if you were a rabbi, and so the special ones, people thought of these prominent rabbis as lights to the universe. So just think for a second. Imagine how this must have sounded to the crowd of people, and maybe even a few Pharisees in the crowd and some other rabbis. When he turns to the people and Jesus says, those rabbis are not the light of the world. You are the light. 
You, fishermen who just got off a boat and haven't bathed in three weeks. You, peasant who can't afford food for your family and is here to beg. You, woman who's standing, listening in a culture where women are not allowed to be rabbis or lead anybody in any kind of spiritual growth or development. You are the light of the world. All right, that seemingly innocuous statement, you are the light of the world, is incredibly offensive and counterculture in there. Just like a lot of the blessed are these. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit. You can't call these people light, Jesus. They're uneducated and they're ignorant. And Jesus, they are sinners. And you call them the light of the world? And of course, there can be only one explanation for why Jesus would say to this people, who may only be hearing him for the first time, because he is saying, I am the light of the world, and if you let me into your life, then you spread this light too. Now, they didn't have neon lights, right, and LEDs and fluorescence. They had candles and torches and lamps with flames. And um, I have been fortunate enough to go to Hawaii a few times, and one of my favorite things is if you're staying somewhere in Hawaii with tiki torches on the property, sometimes if you're lucky, at sunset, a Hawaiian guy will come out and blow a shell horn. In fact, you know what, let's just do informal survey here. We were talking earlier this morning about how you pronounce this word. I'm going to spell it, okay? C-O-N-C-H. Okay, how many of you think that is pronounced conch? a conch shell, and how many of you would say conch shell? Yeah, it's about 50-50. That's why I couldn't figure out what to call it this morning. Uh, luckily, Gavin back there uh, told me that on SpongeBob they say conch, so we're going to go with that. Uh, sometimes if you're lucky and you're in Hawaii and you're on a resort with a bunch of tiki torches, uh, this guy will come out and he will blow a conch shell and he will start running with his torch. And he will light every other torch as he goes. And, and in Jesus' day, with no light switches, the most common way you'd light something is with something else that's already lit. So when he says, you are the light of the world, Jesus says, parentheses, just like me, you have the potential to be candles or lamps or torches that get lit off of me. So don't hide it. Don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl or or hide it under a bushel. For those of you who grew up in church, I'm still trying to figure out what a bushel is. Jesus says, I'm the light. You're the light. Don't hide it. And when he says, don't hide your light, he means I want you to do something with the light that I've lit in you. So this can be a little bit complicated. Jesus says to be salt. He clarifies what it means to be salt by saying, be light. Okay, but what exactly does he mean by be a light? D.L. Moody was a famous preacher in the 1800s. You, you may have heard of him because he had a college named after him, a radio station, publishing company. But before all of that, he was a preacher. And here's what he said, trying to define what it meant to be a light. Take a look at this. He said, it, it, it's a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. We're told to let our light shine. And if it does, we won't need to tell anybody it does. The light will be its own witness. Then he goes on. Lighthouses don't ring bells and fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. That is so good. What he implies there is that the shining light that is shining on the world is your behavior. 
how you live your life. It's not your words. It's not your messaging. He says, lighthouses do not ring bells. Look at me. I'm here. They don't fire cannons. They just shine, and people know they're there. Okay, you being salt is not about what you say in this world. And you being light, it's not about you ringing a bell. It's not about standing on a street corner preaching scripture to people who don't want to hear it. Um, in fact, what I haven't shown you is how Moody began these words about life. Take a look at the top of the screen. Here's what he said right before this. A Christian is the world's Bible, and some of them need revising. Suggesting that the greatest thing you'll ever say to the world is through your actions. The greatest way to present God's message to the world is through your actions. But also suggesting something else with this little snarky comment. If Christians are a Bible to the world, some of them need revising. That was like his 1800s version of a mic drop right there. What he says is that some Christians are not shining the right light or they've lost their saltiness. Okay, well then what is the right light? What's the light I'm supposed to shine? If it's what I do, what am I supposed to go do? And Jesus explains it in the last verse of this passage. He says, you are salt of the earth, you are light of the world, and then in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your, would you read these two words with me? Good deeds. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, okay, here's how I want this salt and light thing to go down. Good deeds that will end up pointing people to God. Good deeds, action. Salt and light is about goodness you bring into this world that you're going to show to this world. And that is what he's saying here. Crosswinds, your good works are not going to get you into heaven. That, that is all about the free gift of grace and forgiveness God brings. But your good works can light this world. And it needs it. Um, one pastor at a, a large church of about 4,000 people told the story of the time that the power went out in the middle of an evening service they were having. It was dark out, and uh, for some reason, the emergency lights failed as well in the building. 3,000 people sitting in the auditorium, uh, 1,000 kids over in the kids' wing just down the hall, and no light whatsoever. This was pre-cell phone. So he started to grope his way toward the kids' area, thinking that was the priority. And he reached the door that led to a long hallway. And in the hallway, he saw a mother who had a flashlight on her keychain was making her way to her children. And he writes, her small light didn't illuminate the whole hallway. But it reoriented a, a pretty scary moment. Pretty soon, with her one light, others were able to find emergency flashlights in the classrooms. And then others went, and they pulled their cars up to the windows, and they, they shined their headlights through the classroom windows so they could get all the kids to, to safety. All right, after about 10 minutes, he made his way back to the sanctuary. And uh, he, he writes, it looked like a 1960s rock concert, as all the baby boomers had gotten out their Bic lighters and were waving them around as if Hey Jude were being performed by the Beatles. And he wrote, as funny as that was, what I still remember 20 years later is the enormous power of one mom's flashlight to bring hope and orientation to a seriously unnerving moment. And Crosswinds, our world needs your light, the light that is your good deeds. And Jesus says, when you shine those, your Father in heaven will be glorified, meaning people will see him. Um, 
My wife, Andrea, never tells the story about herself, very rarely. But uh, when we lived in Las Vegas, she was on a show, uh, in a show on the Las Vegas Strip. I, I imagine a lot of you didn't know that. Um, the show was called Second City. Uh, Second City is a sketch comedy theater or, or, or troupe, I guess you'd call it, originally out of Chicago. And uh, then it expanded to Toronto. Uh, maybe you know it from SCTV back in the 70s or 80s. Anybody remember that? Uh, now they have a theater in L.A., but for a while there, they had a show in Vegas at the Flamingo. And uh, when we moved to Vegas, she had heard through some friends that they were auditioning for an all-improvised show. All-improvised means it's kind of like a, a whose line is it anyway? You've seen that show on TV before. Uh, audience suggestions, and then you make a sketch around it. And Andrea auditioned and was cast in the show uh, for a while. She was the only one. That's a picture of Andrea with the rest of the cast. right? There. That's like 15 years ago, would you say? Yeah. Andrea did this for uh, about four years while we were in Vegas. In fact... She did it while she was pregnant with Kennedy, which is crazy to me because it's a physical job. And you wouldn't think that Vegas audiences would pay to see a pregnant woman on stage uh, doing sketch comedy. But that's my wife. And that's one of your pastors, by the way. <laughs> anyway, it was interesting to work in a casino where there's a lot of things happening, right? Some good, um, some neutral, uh, and then maybe lots of not so good things happening. Gambling addictions, people losing money they can't afford to lose. Sex addictions, certainly alcohol, other drugs. Lots of one-night stands happening on the Las Vegas Strip. Prostitution, a lot of darkness. Um, one might think that a, a Fuller Seminary graduate whose previous work experience was primarily churches would not think that the best Christian witness they could provide would be to join the cast of a comedy show in Vegas that is improvised where drunk audiences are going to throw out suggestions that are not always the cleanest. Or, or, or where some of your castmates who are not professing Christians are going to put you in scenes where you may not be incredibly comfortable with the material that they're, they're inviting you to join them in. Where as you are wrapping up for the night in your dressing room and, and changing clothes to go home, the burlesque show that follows yours on the same stage is getting dressed to go on. Many Christians would not think that's being salt or light. Um, if salt is flavor, Andrea didn't sprinkle a lot of Jesus humor into the show, I promise you that. If light meant that we fight the darkness and make it go away, well, well let me put it this way. The Las Vegas Strip is still there last I checked. Still doing what it does. One day, uh, Andrea got a call from a reporter, um, and he had heard that her husband was a, a pastor and, and thought it would make a great story how this woman is in this show on the strip, and she's a Christian. And uh, here's the cover of the Las Vegas Weekly, looking into the world of Las Vegas comedy. That's Andrea in the background right there behind George Wallace. Um, Andrea's the one on the right, in case you're confused. Uh, George Wallace is on the left. George Wallace is like longtime comedian, a king of the yo mama jokes. And, and what seemed to be most fascinating to this reporter was that a Christian would put herself in this setting, a setting like this, because Christians typically condemn settings like this. And Andrew essentially said in the interview, well, my faith is not about condemning people. It's about being a light. Andrea realized that salt and light is doing good around others so that they may see and know God. And, and I'll tell you, in the middle of a weekly news magazine that if you ever pick one up while you're in Vegas, it is just page after page of ads for nightclubs and strip clubs and town slogans like uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. In the middle of that, there was an article that talked about Andrea's faith in God. 
Can I show you something that is one of my like, favorite passages in the Bible? In fact, I alluded to it last week. It's 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That says right there, you know what your job is, salt and light, your mission, your ministry, your message? Not that God opposes people because of the sin in their life. He's not counting their sins against them. Your message, light of the world, salt of the earth, it is to let people know that God wants to reconcile with them. He goes on, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to the God who wants to be reconciled to you. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh my gosh, that is so wonderful. The message to a decaying world is God is not against you. You can be reconciled. And the way that you help people know that, it's going to be your good deeds. Salt and light. Jesus closes his, his blessed arthas with the challenge to us to be salt and light. He says, you are a light in the world who's lit yourself off of me, the light of the world, and you have got to let your light shine in crosswinds. Our world needs your light right now. It needs all of these blessed arthas that we've looked at from you. In a world where everybody's jockeying for position, trying to get higher up the status ladder, you know what our world needs? It needs your meekness. Blessed are the meek. In, in a world full of injustice and mourning, it needs people who so hunger and thirst for righteousness that they see a wrong and they want to make it right. In, in the world we live in, full of people pointing fingers at each other, claiming moral high ground, our world needs you people of mercy who not only extend forgiveness but you lay down your power so that you can live with people with pure heart and in this world full of people who are out to stir things up and start battles our world needs you peacemakers committed to reconciling people to God to each other those words of Jesus were true 2,000 years ago. His world needed those things. Our world needs them just as much today. As we close out the series, I, I want to ask you, what would it look for you to be that kind of light? We heard a song recently that we thought was just the absolute best way that we could wrap up a series like this, where Jesus calls us to be this kind of light in the world. I'm gonna ask you to listen to this song before you go. And as the band comes to, 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 to sing it, I wanna just pray for us. So would you join me?